if you were with us in our last discussion, we um, began answering questions related to John's revelation in chapter 20 regarding the millennial kingdom. The reason we believe in the second coming of Christ and a literal physical kingdom and a king on a throne is the same reason we believe in the first coming of a literal physical Lord. The Bible tells us so. That's about as simple as it gets. The Bible tells me so, which is good theology. If we believe the Bible's 109 prophecies related to the first coming of Christ, and they did indeed come true, we certainly shouldn't have any problem believing then in the remaining 220 prophecies of our Lord's second coming and believing they will also be literally physically fulfilled. The kingdom and the king is coming to planet earth. Now we answered the question in our last discussion, and I'll review very quickly, who is the king exactly? The prophets declare that he is the Old Testament Messiah. He's prophesied and those prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament person of Jesus Christ, who often called, in fact, most often called himself the Son of Man, thus tying himself back to the prophecy of Daniel in that messianic title. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, we're even told of the, the Savior in his suffering and his crucifixion. Isaiah wrote of his coming humiliation. The first time he came, he was humbled. He accepted death, even death on a cross. And Isaiah tells us in that wonderful text about how he how he was pierced for our transgressions and it, it pleased the Father to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. That was the plan. That was not some, uh, now what do we do? That was the plan of God for the redemption of mankind. And of course, he did not lie in the grave and become corrupted and decay. Psalm 1610 tells us of the resurrected Messiah who was not abandoned by the Father but rose from the dead. There is a coming kingdom of God on earth and the king, if there's any doubt, David in Psalm chapter 2 informs us in that text with a capital S, he refers to the Son. I have installed my king upon Zion, that is in Jerusalem. I have given my son the nations as an inheritance. Listen, O kings of the earth, do homage to the Son that he not become angry. How clear is that? Psalm 2, up through verse 12. Revelation 19 reveals for us that dramatic event where the Son descends and the hosts of heaven with him and he has that, that, that royal robe on and embroidered on the cloth at his thigh is his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is the coming King? He is the Messiah of Isaiah and Daniel. He is the son of man who came to seek and to save those who were lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He is the one claimed by his apostles to be in Matthew 16, 16. As Peter serves as spokesman, Jesus, the Christ, that is the Messiah, the son of God. That's who the king is. Then we also answered the question, how long will the kingdom last? We weren't quite sure, were we, how long it would last? And so we went to Revelation chapter 20 and over and over and over again, if you weren't with us, a thousand years, 1,000 years, verse uh, 2, 1,000 years, middle part of verse 3, 1,000 years, the last part of verse 4, 1,000 years, verse 5, 1,000 years, verse 6, and the, and the sixth time, verse 7, 
1,000 years. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? If your wife told you to take out the trash, you could possibly tell her later you didn't hear her. If she told you twice, you could say, well, I didn't hear you. And that'll work for two or three weeks, um, from what I'm told, uh, not personally experiencing that. But if she told you four times, you'd be running out of options. If she told you five times, you'd be in trouble. If she told you six times, you'd be dead meat, spiritually speaking, of course. And you'd run to the city of refuge in order to survive, right? So you, you have to tamper with every hermeneutical principle that takes anything seriously from the Word of God related to any kind of timing and just sort of chuck that out. God probably isn't serious. Do you really want to tamper with God's references in Revelation to time periods? The book of Revelation tells us that, that heaven lasts forever. You want to mess with that? God probably isn't serious. That's such a long time. Now, as we talk about the millennial kingdom and this 1,000-year reign, there are other views of the millennium. And, and I'm going to very briefly for the record, give them to you, and I don't want to put you to sleep, but let me give them to you very quickly. The first view is preterism, or the preterist view. This is the belief that most of the prophecies in the Old Testament and Revelation of the Tribulation period took place at the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. In other words, it already took place. Problem is, John wrote Revelation in about A.D. 95. He's talking about things that have yet to come to pass. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 clearly says, these are things that are yet to happen. This is going to happen. It didn't happen. Besides that, where's the record of a hundred pound hailstone and millions of them pummeling the earth? Where's the record of the Euphrates River drying up? When was the mark of the beast ordered? Well, enough of that view. Another metaphorical view of the millennium is post-millennialism. They believe the kingdom will actually be brought about gradually by evangelism and the Christianization of, of this planet. That everybody's going to just buy into it over time and the human race is going to get better and better and, 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 and more Christian, more civil. There's going to be peace and prosperity. You can call post-millennialism as, as that belief that is... Uh, incorporated by the optimist club, okay? Things are going to get better and better. Now, mankind has the power through the gospel to Christianize the world. Listen, the church is getting further and further behind as it relates to the population of the earth. There are so many dialects that have not one scrap of scripture, and that's why I believe during the tribulation period, the angel will circumnavigate the globe, delivering to everyone the gospel. Now, post-millennialism was primarily developed, this optimistic view of, of the human race, in the 16th century, as they saw inventions and development, and, and everything looked like it was just getting better and better, but it fell out of favor, some believe it today, but it fell, for the most part, out of favor when? After World War I and World War II and the Great Depression, and, and the record of moral decay, how one could ever believe that we'll just get better and usher in the kingdom, I do not, I do not know. Another view is amillennialism, that believes the church simply inherited the promises of the kingdom. Christ is simply ruling in our hearts. There will be no literal 1,000-year reign. You take passages like Revelation 20, and you say, well, that's just a nice idea. It's spiritual. It's some sort of metaphysical uh, truth. 
And um, these prophecies must be taken at least figuratively instead of literally. Enough of that view. The view that we're talking about is we take prophecy at face value and we believe that those prophecies of Christ's first coming happen physically and literally. Why not the prophecies of his second coming? You have to put your hands over your eyes, close up your ears, in order to somehow discount it all. For today, let's answer some more questions. Who will be the subjects in the coming kingdom? Very quickly, Daniel 7 promises that Old Testament saints will reign in the kingdom, millennial kingdom. The New Testament saints, or the church, will also, of course, reign. We have here in Revelation 20, verses 4 and following, a third group, that's the martyrs, those who died during the tribulation, they're resurrected, glorified, and they will also reign. In fact, look back again. Then I saw thrones, verse 4, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw that is among them the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That is so clear and obvious. In other words, Jesus Christ is going to keep his word and his promise, even to these who resisted the agenda of the Antichrist, refused the mark, they will indeed reign with him. By the way, the phrase in verse 4, they came to life, cannot refer to some sort of spiritual resurrection or simply a, a reference to the new birth through salvation. That word is azazon. Whenever it is used in reference to somebody dying and then rising, it is always used in reference to somebody literally, physically, bodily resurrecting from the dead. Every time. The fourth category of the subjects of the kingdom would be living mortals who survived the tribulation without dying. They accepted the gospel and they entered the kingdom in this way. Now, let me summarize it this way. Let me give you two categories then of people occupying the earth during the millennial kingdom. Those with glorified bodies, we'll call them in the language of the Apostle Paul, immortals, and mortals, those with natural, earthly bodies. Now the immortals are made up of three different categories of individuals. The first our Old Testament saints who are resurrected, who reign, Daniel 7, Daniel 12. They will include both Jewish and Gentile followers of God by faith in his plan of atonement. In the Old Testament era, it looked forward to the fulfillment of that one who would die as the final sacrifice. Jews and Gentiles. There are many Gentile followers in the Old Testament era who believed, left their false gods and believed in the atoning work of God's plan through the coming uh, Savior. For instance, Ruth would be one. You remember her? She uh, was a, a pagan, a foreign god worshiper, and uh, she heard evidently the truth through Naomi. And when her husband, Naomi's son, died, she chose to go back with Naomi to Bethlehem. She'll be resurrected. She'll be one of those reigning as immortals. Uh, she happened to marry a guy named Boaz, whose own mother, also a Gentile, was an unbeliever. She was a former prostitute who lived in a, in a town uh, that uh, Israel would invade, and they knew Israel was coming. They sent, in fact, they sent spies ahead. Rahab, the prostitute living there in Jericho, hid them, and uh, she decided that she would follow Israel. Uh, you, you know, you've heard the song, the walls of Jericho came a what? Tumbling down. She heard that song, knew that something was going to happen, and she needed to get out of there, right? She left, accepted the gospel delivered to her, and 
married a Jewish man named Salmon. They had a boy named Boaz who married Ruth. So you have Rahab and you have Ruth, not only in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but immoralized and reigning with Christ in the coming kingdom. Second to that, you have the second category. You have the New Testament believers clothed, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, with immortality. That would be you and me. The church today, by the way, is composed of Jews and Gentiles, is it not? In fact, the first church created by the Spirit of God was primarily Jewish, and it all got started in what city? Jerusalem. Like the prophets of old, the 12 apostles were all Jewish men. In fact, the great ambassador to the Gentile world is a converted Jewish rabbi named Paul. And Paul will remind the Corinthian believers composed of Jew and Gentile converts, that the church will one day, he writes in 1 Corinthians 6 two, be judging or ruling the world, a reference to the kingdom. The third group of immortals, again, are these tribulation martyrs. Now, on the other side of the column is the second category of kingdom subjects. They are the mortals. They enter the kingdom having believed the gospel during the tribulation. They are still in their natural non-glorified earthly bodies, the ones they were born with. They haven't died. They will become the population of the world and their children and their children's children will populate the earth over whom we, the immortals, will reign. At the close of the tribulation, those believers who'd survived, according to Matthew 25, will be able to enter the kingdom of Christ. Matthew chapter 25 reveals the great judgment, the nations, and, and uh, Christ separates the two, those during the tribulation who didn't believe. He sends to await their final torment. Those who did believe, they simply enter this new epoch, this new era of the kingdom of Christ on earth in literal, physical form. By the way, if the church is not raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, but goes through the tribulation, then merely goes up to meet Christ and immediately comes back down, as post-tribulationalists believe. There is a problem, or several of them. One of them is you have the kingdom immediately populated by earthly, mortal people who haven't died, who come out of the tribulation. And according to Matthew chapter 25 and the prophetic descriptions, they, they are the beginning part or segment of the world's population. They physically enter. How'd they get there? Who are they? They have physical bodies. Now, they will be healed of their diseases. Isaiah 33, they're going to be given the ability to live for a long time, Isaiah 65, but they're, they're, going to be, they're still going to die. They're going to, they're going to need to be glorified one day. Now, according to the prophets, these mortals will marry, have children. They're going to flourish. They're going to enjoy all of the kingdom benefits. Their children uh, will have to accept the gospel of Christ. Uh, they will be sinners. Uh, there will be crime. The good news is there's going to be a just system of jurisprudence. Nobody will be bribed. Everything will be honest because we will reign and we will rule over them, but they will be sinners in need of salvation. Just because their parents are confirmed, having believed in the tribulation, who enter the kingdom, that doesn't give them a free pass. God doesn't have grandchildren or great-grandchildren. You know, I've asked people before, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, my, my, my father was a preacher. 
That might actually be a bad sign. I've had people tell me, yeah, my grandfather was a preacher. That doesn't, I asked you, are you saved? Have you been born again? Have you personally received the merits of Christ on your behalf? Have you, have you asked him to forgive your sins? Without it, you will not enter heaven and certainly not the kingdom before that as an immortal one who will reign. So these who grow up in the kingdom, and there will be probably several billion of them flourishing over this thousand-year reign, they will have to accept the grace of God through his atoning plan of salvation. And by his grace, by the way, it's going to be very easy to understand the nature of the gospel because of the millennial temple that I'll talk about in just a moment. But for, for right now, let, let's just stop and let me, let me give you a little pop quiz to see how well you've been catching on, all right? I want to hear the answer. Ready? Who is the king? Okay, that was an easy one. All right, let's try that again. Who is the king? Good, all right? We're doing better, all right? How long is the kingdom? Are you sure? Yes. Okay, good. We got that nailed down. All right. And you're going to take out the trash the first time she asks. Amen? Yeah. Amen? Amen. <laughs> I'm going to leave you to your own torment. Okay, let's move on. What are the two categories of subjects in the kingdom? Okay, this is an open screen quiz. That's, e- that's easy, all right? Now we have three categories of immortals. They are? Outstanding. On the other side, we have another category, and we'll call them the mortals, and they're made up of? You got an A plus. You read so well. That's, that's wonderful. All right. Let me ask another question and answer it. Where is the actual location of Christ's throne? Better yet, Where exactly is the capital city of his kingdom? Short answer. Anybody want to say it? Jerusalem. The city of God, also called the mountain of God. David wrote in Psalm 48 of this coming kingdom, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Now notice this. Beautiful in elevation. Something's going to change. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So so David refers to it as God's mountain to an elevated place, and he references universal joy. What about this city? You go all the way back to Abraham, and we understand that these patriarchs, and even before to Adam, before him were given revelation about the atonement system and and, uh, the kingdom so that Abraham, way back there, is waiting. He's looking for this city. And it isn't the Jerusalem that, that you think of now. It's a city made without human hands whose architect is God. Doesn't exist yet in this fashion. There's something different about it. It's elevated. It's magnificent. It's divinely designed and created by God's own power, which leads me to another question. What will Jerusalem, what will this capital city look like? One author 
in his work on the millennial kingdom refers to all the prophecies that allow us to understand the topographical changes that are going to take place at, at the end of, of the bowls as Christ returns. And we've already studied that, and, so we, and we don't have time to repeat it. But, but the changes of the earth's surface that are going to take us back to Eden-like conditions. Listen to Zechariah describe Jerusalem and the surrounding area. He says in Zechariah 14.10, All the land will be changed into a plain level south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. It's, it's literally going to come up and be elevated. What exactly? He says, from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, from the Tower of Hananel, to the king's wine presses. In other words, Jerusalem proper, inside the city walls. Then Zechariah adds, they will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security and peace. So a lot of things change. The city will be inhabited on its ancient site, and, and it will be inundated with this attribute that we know it does not have, peace, security. The prayer request of the Jewish nation for centuries has been pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace will genuinely and finally come to pass in the millennial kingdom as, as Christ rules on planet earth. And, and beyond that, around the globe, marked by this wonderful rule of our Lord, who rules the nations. Our world does not know security or peace. Talks about it. Talks about it more and more as time goes along. It attempts to find it, and that's a noble objective. But our world doesn't know peace. In fact, I, I laughed when I read one author. He said, whenever he hears of someone being arrested for disturbing the peace, he wonders where the guy found some of it. Where did he find peace to disturb? Well, peace will one day come when the Prince of Peace comes. Now the prophet informs us that the Lord will make the wilderness like unto Eden, Isaiah 51.3. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness, again, you have joy, again, found therein. Thanksgiving in the voice of melody or literally music. Now all the topographical changes around the globe are specifically formulated to create a, a high mountain or plateau upon which Jerusalem sits and commands with this rather commanding view, not only from it but to it. In Ezekiel's vision, chapter 40, verse 2, God takes him to the land of Israel and sets Ezekiel on a very high mountain. And to the south, he says, there was a structure like a city. Now, we can only imagine what the golden city will look like, the place where we will have residence as immortals, and from there go out and serve the Lord wherever he puts us somewhere on the planet. But to provoke your imagination, I'll give you just a few sketches today drawn up by Janet Willis the author of a study on the kingdom, but she then put her painter's skills to work. Janet and her husband, Scott, Scott was a former pastor. He preached for me this past summer. Her creative work has, has uh, done a wonderful job provoking certainly my imagination, and I believe yours too, and, and she's allowed me to, 
to show these to you. In fact, if I'm speaking to somebody right now who skipped church to stay home to listen to the live webcast of this service, you're wondering now, what am I missing? You're missing everything. I want you to know that. If, if you're listening later on on some podcast and you're listening to me right now in the future yet still to come uh, on the radio, these pictures that you're going to hear me talk about that you cannot see will be in the manuscript. She's allowing me to put them into the manuscript, which will be downloaded from colonial.org or wisdomonline.org for free. All right, enough of a commercial. All right, here we go. Now, this particular sketch raises a healthy debate among evangelical scholars all of them believing in the literal reign of Christ in Jerusalem. There are many scholars who believe this capital city will actually hover above the earthly Jerusalem during the kingdom and then come down after the new earth and heaven are created. Other scholars believe this divinely created capital city, this enclosed golden palace, so to speak, is planted on this high plateau which would then correspond with the need for the elevation of the city during the kingdom. Either way, it's a win-win. Every immortal will have at least two residences. Every one of us who believe will have a residence inside this city of God and another residence wherever God has us serving as co-regents with with Christ. But we're going to have a place in there What Christ refers to, I believe, in John 14 as the Father's house. We're told that in the Father's house are many monet, translated in the King James mansions, NASB, dwelling places or rooms. We need to get the idea out of our minds that we've got this big palace and 40 acres, and then we got another mansion and 40 acres, and you've wondered how close you'd be to God. And if you're like me, you think, I'm going to be like in China That's how far away it'll be, right? No, we're all in the Father's house and we have a dwelling place there. I believe it's this golden city. John Walford suggested in his wonderful work on the Millennial Kingdom that this city would actually be built in the form of a pyramid. And that's how Janet Willis has described it here in artistic form, the river of life cascading down in a certain way over the levels and then causing the land of Jerusalem and beyond to flourish like a garden. I think there's a good reason for holding to this ziggurat view, this step pyramid view. And, and, and by the way, we don't know. There's one, one rather thin reference where it refers to the steps of God's uh, creation that may refer to this. Not enough to be a certain, but let me take you back in time and why I believe it is. If you just go back and you watch what mankind does, having the truth of God written on their heart, you go all the way back to the beginning days of Genesis chapter 11, where you have this man rebel. Having heard, I believe, like Abraham and others of the coming city, he rebels. And what does he do? He builds, Nimrod does, his own city. And he builds the ziggurat. And at the top level, there is what will become the zodiac. Even unbelievers trace the, the development of, the, of this false religion back to Babylon. We, we, we refer to the tower of what? Babel. And the confusion that came because of God's judgment. So you have, you have mankind building uh, this ziggurat. And at the top level... 
Instead of it being the throne of God, which will be the future city of God, you have the zodiac. You have, you have symbols, and we've discovered many of them going back centuries. You have the symbols of the zodiac, meaning that the very top is their worship, not of creator God, but of what? Creation which is a perfect fulfillment of Romans chapter 1, that unbelieving man resists the truth of God and he worships creation rather than creator God. So when Nimrod rebelled against God, he built a city and a tower, a pyramid, a ziggurat, whose top represented the heavens which he worshipped and all those with him. You travel around the world today, by the way, And you will find ancient civilizations building step pyramids as part of their pagan worship. You go to Egypt, India, Mexico, China, North America. By the way, you also find these cultures have their own versions of the great flood. And they have built into their worship systems with their step pyramids, animal sacrifices. Where do you think that all came from? It came from the gospel that had been delivered to Adam and the patriarchs. Twisted in the heart of men who would not worship God, the creator. And so they mimicked the city of God with the building of their own pyramids. Even the Egyptian pyramids, which they believed enabled the Pharaoh on his way to meet with the eternal stars. Abraham was waiting for the true city of God. We're told, of course, he didn't find it. It wasn't built yet, and it still hasn't been. It will be, and we, the immortals, will reign in it. And it will be unbelievably magnificent. Let me ask and answer another question. What will our worship system be like for us and for the mortals over which we rule? What will that be like? Well, our communion as immortals will be face-to-face with Christ. It will be intimate, physical. That's why John in chapter 20 of Revelation and, and uh, verse 6 says that we'll be priests of God and Christ. In other words, there's nobody in between, and and that'll be so much more wonderful than what we have now because with us, our faith is without things being seen, right? We'll have things to see, and we'll have the face of Christ to see as well. Ezekiel informs us of the millennial temple located on this raised plateau. That holy allotment Ezekiel talks about, which... There's varying degrees of size depending on the commentator or the scholar, anywhere from 37 square miles to 50 square miles. On that holy allotment, you have this golden city. You have dwelling places for the priests who will serve in the millennial temple, and the millennial temple will be in the very center of this holy allotment. The temple will be the central piece in the worship of God throughout the millennial kingdom. Now, In this particular sketch, you can see a portion of this plateau as realistically, depending on the imagination as you can get, this 37-square-mile region, which will include our dwelling place inside the city of God. To the left of the picture, you can see a little golden orb that represents, to scale as best as it can be rendered, the millennial temple. By the way, this view here is stunning, isn't it? 
as you consider just the scale of the golden city. Revelation chapter 21 verse 16 gives us some measurements and many believe that, that uh, the measurement is actually a cubed measurement which would mean that the golden palace, the city there, would stretch some 11 miles high. You can't miss it. Maybe in the future when we get to heaven, I mean our study of heaven, I'll show you a picture. I won't need to show you it when we get to heaven, but when we get to the passage of Scripture, I'll show you a picture that shows this golden palace, as it were, compared to Mount Everest. Mount Everest looks like just a little dot. It's pretty amazing. Well, the prophet Isaiah mentions that in the city of Jerusalem, rendered in this sketch, there will be this unique feature to that area where at night the cloud canopy over the city will have the appearance of fire. In other words, in this city, both in the kingdom and throughout the new heaven and new earth, the curtain of glory and light will never close. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This particular sketch shows Jerusalem at night in the kingdom. Now, Ezekiel informs us that the millennial temple and the temple worship system will reinstate animal sacrifices that blend in certain aspects of of even the church age. Animal sacrifices will be reinstated as memorials to the sacrificial death of of our great king. They're going to be a wonderful lesson, a memorial to teach and reteach to all of those generations that are born and grow up in the millennial kingdom. They're going to need to hear the gospel. What better way than to reinstate these sacrifices and teach them? One author uh, provoked my thinking when he said, how needful these sacrifices will be. Imagine you are born and you grow up. You dwell in the blaze of of Messiah's glorious throne. How needful to have ever before you some memorial of the cross, some tangible record of the humbled Jesus, some visible demonstration of his sin-bearing work by which you have been forgiven, saved, and loved. All those generations who populate the earth will owe all of their blessedness to the plan of salvation and to the grace of God. So the millennial kingdom then, ladies and gentlemen, is going to require teaching, teaching, the exposition of Scripture. It's going to require that mortals who come to believe in the gospel could also be trained to go out and tell other mortals, right, of the truth of what exactly this kingdom represents and that there is a coming judgment. See, they'll be able to deliver the same message. That judgment will be the final judgment, the great white throne, in the next few verses of this same chapter. They need to be saved. So perhaps teaching stations will explode around the globe as mortals are taught the truths and they train and they teach the truths to others. One more question, briefly. What will we do throughout the kingdom? What will we as immortals, as co-regents, do? And the reason I can be brief is because we haven't been given much. Now, I don't have a verse on this, but I'm pretty sure that, that we'll all be smiling a lot. We're going to be incredibly blessed. and in, I think we're going to pinch ourselves. I, I think we're going to say, 
wow, to think that I'm here. That sound odd to you? A lady who's in her 90s with her hand, arm through the arm of a gal who's taking her to Sunday school class. She looked at me with tears in her eyes. She said, to think that I'm going to be able to be there is an amazing thought. See, that's, that's spiritual maturity. Not, okay, where, where's my throne? Come on. No. You mean I get to be here? Through faith in Christ, my Redeemer, who now sits in throne. Wow. Praise God. No wonder joy keeps showing up. Joy throughout the kingdom. So we're not told, but since I'm your pastor and I get paid to use my imagination, I've come up with a few things. Let me just suggest some things to you. Maybe for one of you or many of you. It could be some educational post of leadership. As immortals strategize to deliver the truth to and through the mortals, all of the millions who need to hear the truth about this king. Perhaps for you it could be a cabinet position or some political rule of a city or state or country. Perhaps it could be some kind of leadership in the system of of law. There will be crime, there will be sin, there will be a population to control with grace and dignity and balance and honesty. No more bribing, no more let me give you a free pass here, no more I know you, and it'll be perfectly just. Perhaps you'll be involved in that system. Maybe for, for one of you or more, it'll be an agricultural post of, of uh, some high level of decision-making in order to ensure that the resources of, of earth are managed with beauty and dignity and, and balanced distribution. Maybe for you it could be the highest level of financial stewardship. Imagine the monetary oversight that's going to be needed as the nations of the world flourish for a thousand years with with a just system, with an honest government, with righteous jurisprudence. Can you imagine how the economies of the world will flourish Can you imagine the inventions of the world? I I know two inventors, and and both of them invented a product, and then they spent years doing what? Having to go to court to keep it because somebody lied and said it was theirs. You can take that all the way back to Henry Ford and before. Spent so many years just simply dealing with dishonesty. Imagine no dishonesty. The inventions immediately applied. Maybe for some of you, it could be the highest seat of some judicial bench. As nations have to get along, the prophets indicate or imply that the nations will have to have things resolved. Maybe the resolution will come from you. Maybe you'll have a a chief position in some musical academy for the composition of new music to be sung in the golden city. We've been told that there will be music there. All of the above, I believe, are not only possible, but they are only the beginning 
of positions matched with royalty and dignity and authority and effectiveness and and fruit and wisdom and, and balance and joy. Isaiah 51, 3 is a text I've already referred to, but let me read it again. He refers to Zion and the region around her, the wilderness he will make like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sounds of music. Isaac Watts, by the way, try to capture the truth of the kingdom and the joy related to the kingdom by composing a a hymn. He actually uh, took the music of Handel, the same who wrote what we know as of uh, Handel's Messiah. There's a brief phrase in that hymn, let every heart prepare him room, that immediately the church took it and said, okay, that's Christmas. He wasn't writing about the first coming. He was writing about the second coming coming. And I think he'd be a little surprised and disappointed to find that we only sing it one or two weeks out of the year. He's referring to the second coming of Christ. Listen to some of the lyrics. Joy to the world, the Lord is what? Come, let earth receive her what? Her king. Listen to these lyrics. Another stanza. Joy to the earth. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. Here's another. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. What a great hymn for the coming kingdom. It is a time of Joy. There will be joy to the world finally. There will be joy on the planet at last. As the knowledge of our God covers the earth like the waters of the sea. No wonder Isaiah says it will be time of it will be a time of joy and melody we will sing of the glories of his righteousness Watts adds in the wonders of his love